just want to thank Pastor Steve and the other elders for giving me an opportunity to preach again. It's uh, a little uh, unnerving to be not only preaching it to my friends and family here at, at Calvary, but also to be preaching in front of our new pastor. Um, so hopefully I will uh, provide a good impression uh, for our church uh, generally, and he won't uh, have too much to correct me on next week, hopefully. Uh, we have been going through uh, the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we are right now uh, uh, on, near the end of chapter 3 in Philippians, so if you wouldn't mind, could you please turn to Philippians chapter 3, starting to read at about verse 17. I'll give you a few moments. Chapter 3, Philippians, verse 17. While you're getting there, uh, I just wanted to say, uh, I've been watching a little bit more TV. I just got back from PEI where I was working under Pastor Steve. And uh, right now I'm kind of between jobs. And so it's one of the things that you do when you're between jobs, you end up watching a lot more TV. And uh, growing up, I actually liked to watch news. I was a strange kid, I'll admit. But I, I tend to watch news channels. And one of the things I've noticed watching the news channels that you get, uh, you get on the TV these days, everything is so simple for them. It's, uh, everything is, you know, one thing or it's the other. You're a liberal or you're a conservative. You're a terrorist or you're a freedom fighter. You're correct or wrong. Everything is so simple. And it extends to the rest of our culture as well. It's not just the, these kinds of things. You're uh, a good person or a bad person. You, uh, you're a Leafs fan or you're a hockey fan. You're <laughs> all kinds of things that, you know, I, I, I say that because I am a very chagrined Leafs fan. It's, they, they just never make me happy. Uh, <laughs> But everything seems so simple. As we've gotten so much more information in the world, so much more availability of information, we've gotten a heck of a lot more simplistic about the way we see things. I have friends who are actually uh, activists for different kinds of political causes. And one of the things that I find very interesting is how they react to Christians. Uh, they aren't Christian, just to let you know. But one of the things that they keep talking about is if you're a Christian, you're opposed to this stuff, and so you hate this other stuff. If you say, for example, I am personally pro-life, I think that is the biblical position. I believe that abortion is kills uh, an unborn, an unborn human. And the interesting response I get from my activist friends is, if you believe that, you obviously hate women. Well, well, no. No, but it comes from the other side too. Us is uh, sometimes the pro-lifers will say, if you if you actually have some differences of opinion and you think differently on this, well, obviously you love death. We make things so simple, and that's got a bit of a problem for us as biblical Christians because Christianity is kind of different than absolutely everything the world tries to throw up in front of us. I mean, if you look at Jesus, if you look at Jesus' life and his teachings, he rebukes all of us. 
there's some things that when you read your Bible, if you aren't uncomfortable reading your Bible sometimes, if you aren't, don't feel yourself corrected, I got to wonder if you're really reading your Bible. There are things that when I'm reading, I, when I was looking at this this week, in fact, I actually started to see things in the text that I had to admit, I don't meet this. I'm not a good Christian in some ways, and so I need to be corrected. I need to be repenting. I need to be changing. And so that means that when I'm trying to explain to other people about this Jesus that I know, this Jesus who saved my soul, explaining it to them, I can't fit it in the really easy frameworks that they have, the simplistic, dualistic frameworks that everybody seems to be working from. And I think that's one of the things, one of the reasons that Paul writes as he does here near the end of chapter 3. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow's workers whose names are in the book of life. So, Paul here is faced with trying to explain to people what Christ is like and how a Christian life looks. And instead of actually giving us a full listing of precisely, okay, a Christian looks like this, and he does this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing, giving us a checklist of things to say this is Christian and this is not Christian, he turns to them and says, look at the people who have been changed by Christ. Look at the people who are following Christ and living for Christ. Look at the way they live. That's how we're to live. It join in imitating me. I have a friend of mine who uh, apparently has a distaste for, you know, more theological books sometimes because they tend to try and set things in very clear, clear ideas, a very dichotomous ideas, very simplistic terms, and says he likes Christian biography because it gives you a life to look at. It gives you a life that you can try to imitate. And that's actually what Paul is saying is probably a good thing to be looking at. Paul says to join in imitating him and keep our eyes on those who walk according to the example that we have. We are called to imitate righteous people. Righteous people being defined simply as those who have a hope in Christ, a faith in Christ, and who live according to that faith. And honestly, Paul, I love the budget of words in the, in the Bible, the economy, because 
Paul then, while he's saying this, actually gives us a clear example of a few things that Christians look like, that, that we should be like in imitating. Just let me show you a few here in the text. First of all, and most clearly, righteous people, the righteous people, the people who know Christ and live righteously, love. They love one another. They love other people. They even love enemies. I, I know it doesn't say it quite directly, but let me, let me tease this out a bit. Notice, first of all, how, he, how Paul talks about, we need, how, about us needing to have unity in the truth. Go down to chapter 4, verse 2. I entreat Eudia, I'm sorry, it's, uh, I, I'm not very good at pronouncing these things, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. They're, they're called on to actually have agreement. <coughs> they're, now, I know some of you, uh, if you're you know, good, good theological conservatives like myself, are thinking, well, you know, it's not just any agreement. It's just not a surface agreement. But let that, we'll keep that aside for a moment. I agree with you. We'll talk about it in a minute. But first of all, let's, let's think about, let's talk about the ways we sometimes disagree. We in the church are to be marked by a kind of unity, a kind of unity whereby we actually try to agree with each other. We're not looking for fights. That's a hard thing for me to say because, you know, I kind of like a good scrap once in a while. But we are called to be, as Christians, the kinds of people who look to have peace with one another, to not fight over silly things, to get bitter over kind of strange things. I love the fact that there's an example this morning. Notice the chairs are completely different today. Now, some people, when they come in and they see this, the, the chairs differently, they can re we, we can react as, you know, oh, the chairs have changed and all change is bad. Direct quote I've actually heard. Uh, not, not about this today, but I've heard that quote. All change is bad. All change. And of course, change happens. And so you, we can actually develop bitterness about things like this, about the moving of the chairs. We're, go, we're uh, honestly, if you've noticed, we're kind of crowded here right now. It's a good thing that we've gotten rid of most of the kids and they've gone to, gone to the Sunday school because, you know, honestly, we wouldn't, really have, we wouldn't really have the room for everybody to sit down here. That means we're going to have to go through things like looking into what's going to happen in the future. We're going to have to wonder about, you know, are we going to do overflow? Are we going to move to another church building? Are we going to build another church building? Something's got to happen. Are we going to go to two services, three services, 15 services, just to match the number of people that we've got? All of these things are going to be decisions that we as a church are going to have to make, and we're going to have to come to some agreement about. But while we're doing that, we have to remember that we have to have a kind of unity while we're doing this. We can't let bitterness well up in our hearts over disagreements like this. As far as we are in the Lord, we need to have a unity together, like these two women have to have it. I'm, I'm purposely avoiding trying to pronounce their names. But we have to have a kind of unity together. And even in things that aren't so big in the church, people sometimes can annoy us. There are things and things they do and things they say that can be kind of annoying. And that's, that's true in churches just as it is everywhere else. I'm sometimes going to say things 
that are going to be really annoying to some people. And it's really easy to get bitter about that and to say, you know, I really don't want to hang around with Steve because he's kind of weird. We need to be careful about that, though. We need to think about the people that we avoid talking to, the people that we choose to talk to, and try to instead have kind of a unity with them, to care about them, to learn to love them as Christians. Because, honestly, that's what we're called to be. We're called to love one another. So righteous people care about unity in the truth. I'll talk about the proviso in a minute, but just let us think about that for a moment. If you've got anything right now, if you're thinking about somebody that you really don't like in the congregation, right now that's probably a good thing now to think about repenting and talking to them. Trying to find the things that God has created in them to love. It's probably a good thing to think about right now. Just saying. But it doesn't just end with, you know, being okay with people and having a kind of unity. It goes further. Notice this. He continues in verse 3. Yes, I... <laughs> Yes, I'll, I ask you also, true companion, if you want to be a true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, I know we sometimes have this kind of idea where there's, you know, the pastors and elders and then the deacons and then the normal congregation the guys in deacons you know they're kind of workers for christ and you know the elders they're really workers for christ but i don't think that's the kind of paradigm that paul's talking from now the people he's talking about clement and his fellow workers those are people he actually knows who he does work with but i think there's the paradigm's a little bit wider than that because all of us as christians are actually called to work for the kingdom every last one of us. I mean, that's, we don't get the, it's not an option thing that we opt into as a Christian. You know, I can be a Christian and then be a better Christian. I mean, the only, th the only thing is that elders have a different role, deacons have a different role. We in the congregation who don't have those positions have a different role. We're the, we're the kinds of people that get to talk to other people out in the world about who Jesus is. We get to labor in the ministry by helping people as they need to. But most importantly, when it comes to the functioning of our church, we need to be the kinds of people who help one another. Because we're all co-laborers in, in the field of harvest, we need to be looking to the needs that we have one another to actually be helping one another. We need to, if we want to be companions of Paul, if we want to be imitating what Paul is saying, we need to be helping people. And as it says in the text, when we see people who are, you know, even trying to have some bitterness, obviously one or two of these are people who have problems, you know, getting along with each other. But even in that, we as a congregation are to help them. We're to help people who need help. If, you know, if, if I have any difficulty, I should be, my, my brothers and sisters in the church should be the first people I'm able to talk to. If you guys have troubles that I can help with? You guys should have the, the ability to come talk to me, to ask me for that help. And you should be more than a little bit understanding that I should be willing to provide it. Paul's view of the church is a much more integrated thing than, uh, honestly, I think most of us in very individualistic Western culture would be happy with. We're, we're, we're actually called to know 
the problems that we have. Because you can't really help people unless you know they need help. I mean, have you ever tried helping somebody who doesn't need your help? When I was a Boy Scout, you know, I, I tried to, you know, help get the badge that you help ladies who cross the street. And it's interesting trying to help little old ladies cross the street when they don't want to cross the street. <laughs> they get a little angry. I mean, it's the same thing here in the church. We, we can try to help people uh, with things that they aren't actually having trouble with and then missing the things that they do are actually having trouble with, the things that they really do need help with. So we need to be willing, first of all, to ask for the help, but we need to be open enough to know what other people need for help. We need to be the kinds of people who have friends, who hang out with one another so that you know what kind of problems other people have. You know what kind of needs other people have. And you're allowing them to help you, and you're willing to help them. The church is set up to love one another by helping one another. And that can be physically with, you know, setting up chairs and building uh, bookcases and things, which I saw some guys do yesterday. It was great. I just sat in a chair and watched them do it. It was awesome. It was a great picture of the church, though. They were, they were serving one another. It was great. Physical things like that. It might be spiritual things, like just how, asking people, how can I pray for you? How can I talk to you? How can I... How can I spend time with you? With lonely people, just spending time with them. If you see people who are kind of getting away from the faith a little bit, hanging out with them, finding what kinds of things they need to hear, what kind of things they need in their lives. If people are in doubt, to be able to encourage them properly, not as if you're high and mighty over them, but as people with them, co-workers, co-laborers. You see, righteous people help one another. We care about unity and we help one another. But let's go a little further, and this is going to be a little bit harder for us. Righteous people care about their enemies. You'll notice I'm going backwards through the text. Verse 18 in chapter 3. For many uh, of whom I have t often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now, we can you know, understand that, first of all, these, these are people who are enemies. He goes out of his way to say they are opposed to the cross of Christ. If you want to know whether or not they're saved, he says their end is destruction. These people are opposed to the gospel. And as we know, Paul has put his entire life into the gospel. So in a real sense, these are people opposed to Paul. But notice the way he reacts to them. I have often told you he cares about these people enough to talk about them. He thinks about them. He knows them. But more importantly, even with tears. Now, this is the this is actually the part that kind of got me this week. I'm 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 a theological neatnik. I really like my theology in you know nice straight lines, and I like everybody to you know agree with my theology because I'm right. <laughs> I'm glad some of you have laughed at that because that's about right. It's that is a joke. 
in, more, in, in all senses of the word. That's a joke. But I often find myself, when I see people who disagree with me, I find it very easy to look down on them, to be, you know, kind of self-righteous. You know, well, I'm, I know what I'm talking about. You know, I, I understand what a superlapsarian Calvinist is. And I, and I know that they're so much better than those horrible infralapsarians. Uh, if you want to know what those mean, you can talk to me after the service. Uh, it's a long, boring explanation. But anyway, I can actually start thinking myself superior to them. And there are a lot of disagreements that we can have in the church that are like this. I mean, I really do think that people who disagree with me are wrong. I mean, if I didn't, I wouldn't believe what they believe. But let's be careful not to actually think of people negatively because they disagree. In fact, even if they disagree in ways we know are sinful. My friends who are activists for causes that honestly I think are evil, I need to be loving them. I need to be thinking of them as my friends. I need to be praying for them. I need to be willing to talk to them. If they are having troubles or uh, fears or problems, I need to be ready to drop everything and go talk to them, even though I know they hate me, or at least the most of the things I stand for. I have to be ready to be loving. And just in case you think this is just Paul saying it, let's just remember what Jesus said. Um, see if I can get the text right here. Oh, great, I didn't write it down. You see, we actually, Jesus himself said it in Luke and in Matthew. We need to love our enemies directly. We need to love our enemies. And in, just in case you're a liberal scholar and you think you, you do textual criticism and stuff, no liberal scholar anywhere on the planet disagrees that that is something Jesus said. Even the people who think Jesus is made up think at least somebody on whom Jesus was based said that. Because nobody in their right mind usually says something like, love your enemies. But that's precisely what we're called to do as Christians. Paul is exempling the number one thing that we need to be doing about love in the world. We need to be marked by love for our enemies. And again, keep the proviso in your head, but let it land on you first. We need to be loving our enemies. Because, and uh, here, here's the proviso, righteous people care about the truth. We care deeply about the truth. Now, we care deeply about the truth in a way that loves one another, that cares about one another, but we have to care deeply about the truth. He doesn't mince words. Paul doesn't say, you know, there are these people who kind of disagree with us, and, you know, I, I, I want to just hug them and talk, drag them back into the church, and it doesn't really matter that we disagree and that their end is destruction. He says their end is destruction, their God is their belly. He's open and clear about what the, what the truth is. In fact, I'll, uh, I, I, this may be controversial if you're coming from the world and the people who make those TV programs that I've been watching all the time, but I don't think you actually love somebody if you don't love the truth. I don't think you can love somebody unless you love the truth. 
if I'm the kind of person who just glosses over the ways in which honestly people are disagreeing with what God has revealed to us, I don't love them. I love peace. I love people liking me. I don't love truth. You see, this, this is where the dichotomy things get really, really wacky when it comes to the world. Because I've said that we need to be loving people who really dislike Christians. We really do need to be loving them. We need to be caring about them. But we can't stop talking about Jesus. We can't stop facing them with the truth of the gospel. I can't change what Jesus said. I can't change the fact that what Jesus said is truth. I can't change the fact that Jesus is the truth. No matter how much I want to get along with my gay activist and feminist activist friends, and my uh, pro-abortion friends and all sorts of other people, I can't stop saying the truth about what the gospel says in these, in these situations. That we need to repent, that we need to trust in Christ as our salvation. I can't pretend that my Buddhist friend is just as saved as I am. Because if I take Jesus for, what he, for the truth, and he is, there's only one way to heaven, and it's through Christ. You see, we need to be loving not just in a kind of superficial, uh, above-board way. We need to be the kinds of people who care about the truth. And if some of you are working ahead in your minds about what that means, based on what I've said before, that we care about unity, that we help each other, that we care, love our enemies, and that we love them in truth, that's going to mean something very uncomfortable for us in the church. It means we have to be willing to let the people around us speak into our lives. It's just there. I have to be ready when you catch me in sin. When you see me in sin, though everything in my body and in my mind is going to war against you, though I am going to use my sharp tongue against you to make you feel terrible about it, I have to be ready to hear you. And if you really love me, if you really love me, you have to tell me. I have to be corrected sometimes. And I have to be willing to be corrected. And again, going about the whole openness thing, being ready to, for, to let people help me. And to, I have to be open about these things. We, as Christians, need to be marked by the willingness to confess to one another sin by the willingness to stand with one another when, when sin's a problem in our lives. We need, to be the, we need to be the kinds of broken saints that change, that really change when faced with sin, that marked by repentance daily, not marked by trying to separate ourselves out and saying, you know, well, I'm, I, I'm not really into this, you know, getting together thing. I, you know, I'm a dude. I live alone. I've lived alone since I was, you know, in, in my late 20s. I love living alone, but I can't isolate myself from people. I, and I totally get it. It's, it's really easy to try to isolate yourself, to try to pretend that, you know, this stuff doesn't matter and I don't need to be in 
fellowship and community. But the word is clear. I do. I need to care about truth in my own life. I need to let you care about truth in my life. I need to care about truth in your lives. Because we, as a people, righteous people, love. And if we're going to be imitating righteous people like Paul, like Eudike, like Syntyche, like Clement, like all of the heroes of the Bible, fallible people all except for Jesus, we need to be loving. We need to be in fellowship. We need to be in community. And we need to be honest about the truth and honest with one another about the truth. Because, and this doesn't need to be just a downer in things, because it's not based in our own strength. It isn't about our own strength. It isn't about our own ability to know the truth, to see the truth, to tell people what they're wrong. It's because we stand in Christ. Our righteousness, if you're going to be all theological neatnik for a moment, doesn't come from our works. It comes from the justification that God provides us in Jesus Christ. We are righteous because Christ is righteous. And don't believe me? Let's look at the text. Chapter 3, verse 20. Faced, faced with the enemies who disagree with, with uh, the gospel, who are enemies of Christ, Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Get that for a second. It's not just talking about Jesus as if he's my booster, as if he's just going to help me. All these sin things that I'm talking about, all these things that keep me away from fellowship with you and fellowship with God, someday will be dealt with. There, there will come a day when all tears will be wiped away. When all of the foibles and faults I have in myself, the desires I have for sin in myself, will be wiped away in a second. I, in the blink of an eye, I will be transformed, and my lowly body will take on like his glorious body. It'll look like that. By the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. Get that too. Christ is above all. He controls all. He is sovereign over all. When we're, Because all of these things I just said about what loving righteous people do, that's going to be painful, and I'm not going to pretend it isn't. It's going to be very painful. Have you ever tried loving somebody who hates you? It means that you're opening your heart up to somebody who is going to stomp on it. And you know from the beginning he's going to. He hasn't made any... any bones about it. He hates you. But we are called to love him nonetheless. But we can't do that in our own power. We can't do that because we're nice people. We have to do it because we stand in Jesus Christ and he rules all things. He will make it right. We won't. Even if we all obey these things perfectly, if Christ is not in it, this is doomed. Again, another thing that the world misinterprets about Christians, we're not all about moral, moral rectitude. We're all about Christ. And Christ changes who we are. It isn't psychological well-being. It isn't physical well-being. It isn't the benefits to society that we stand in. It's in Jesus Christ. 
Uh, I am not part of the moral majority. I am not going to help you uh, take back Canada to be to have laws that are specifically agreeing with me. I will use my uh, democratic rights to do what I need to do in the in the field. I will be righteous in the field of politics, but it is not my job to make everybody else righteous by my by my use of power. It is my job to love them and to point them to Jesus, who can make them righteous. You see, righteous people are grounded in Jesus Christ and His promises. None of this will work in our own power. So, in conclusion, and this is just the re, re, reassessing everything I've just said. Imitating righteous people, we, we imitate righteous people by learning to love well in the power that comes from Jesus Christ. We, we do that by having unity in Christ not just a superficial unity where we're going to say, I'm going to agree to disagree. No. The kind of unity that comes on, Jesus is the truth. I'm not the truth, you're not the truth. Jesus is the truth. We're going to point to him. That's our unity. And the littler things, the littler disagreements, we can still have them, but they won't be bitter. They won't be marked by bitterness. They won't be marked by uh, our own ego. They'll be set up in such a way as, we just both want to get closer to what Christ wants us to do. When we're arguing about what we're going to do as a church to figure out where we're going to go and building programs and stuff, we're not going to get bitter with one another about whether or not we should move to this building or that building or build onto this thing or put this parking lot in this area. We're just going to say we need to discern and pray and figure out what God would have us do with the stewardship he's given us. That's the kind of thing we're going to do. We're going to have unity in Christ. We're going to help each other as we serve Christ. We're going to be the kinds of people where we care about one another, really care about one another. There won't be people in this church, and hopefully many people who come in later in this church, there won't be people who are you know, completely isolated from everybody else. We will be going out of our way to be part of their lives to trust them with important things in our lives, to be willing to help them when they need the help and help them with wisdom and discernment, not just the kind of help that you know, will make them feel better and make me feel good about myself, but the kind of help that really helps and draws us both closer to Christ. We will love enemies. We will love our enemies. We will make our enemies go kind of crazy because they don't understand us. We're going to be the kinds of people who love them, who care about them, who will stand for them when it's necessary, even as we disagree, even as we stand for the truth of what Christ says in the world, we will love them. It's, it, it, it will freak them out. It really will. We're, and we are going to outdo them if, in Christ, who rules all things, under whom all power and principalities are subject if we're under him the kinds of ways we can love this world blow the tar out of the ways that the rest of the world loves people we're going to love really really well but it's going to be crazy because we're going to be standing in truth and we're going to be rebuking where we need to rebuke and saying what we need to say in love we're not going to be the kinds of people who you know say really really bad and 
dismissive things about people we, uh, we know are going to hell. We're going to love them. We're going to call them to truth. But we're not going to dismiss them. And we are going to finally stand firm in the truth of Christ. We're going to stand firm in the truth of Christ. When the world buffets, when storms come, when problems come in our lives, when the world opposes us, we will stand firm in the truth as people who love one another and are called by Christ. And friends, when we see this, it will be far more beautiful than we could ever imagine. It will show a glory that is far beyond us. You remember, Jesus actually said in his high priestly prayer that the way the world will know that God sent him is the way we love both in truth and in reality. They will know our love and they will see that Jesus is who he claimed to be. The greatest apologetic isn't going to be, you know, just do the right things and that kind of thing. It's that we stand in truth and we love and we say the truth. We are just people wholly bought by Christ. And if that's the case, this city will see the Lord. Lord God, you are far greater than anything we could ever imagine. You have loved us in ways that defy description. Not, not, not counting our sins against us, but instead dying for those sins. Not pretending they didn't exist, but standing against them and paying for them. Lord God, may we be like that. Lord God, you loved us in ways that you care deeply for us. You know our problems, our mistakes, our errors, and you love us, and you help us in ways far greater than we could imagine. I pray now that we would trust that, that we would trust that, that we would know you in your goodness and in your love, and in so knowing you, that we would love those around us. In Jesus' name.